In this episode of the Paid for EDM podcast, we'll learn about some of the legal issues you need to pay attention to when making music, how to help protect yourself and avoid issues down the road, along with how to register some of your rights to your music to avoid leaving money on the table. All coming up. Welcome to the Paid for EDM podcast, helping you build your business and career in the world of electronic dance music and helping you get paid what you deserve. Find the show on the web at paidforedm.com. Here is your host, Brian Hogg. I'm really excited to have Mark Quayle on the show today. He is a lawyer in the entertainment industry, pretty much exclusively with electronic music clients. And he's on the show today to help clarify some of your rights and the issues you should be thinking about as you grow your business and career in electronic music. Yes, uh, getting legal advice can be expensive, and if you're just starting out, you might not want to spend the money to get the legal advice you really should be getting when you're putting music out there, when you're working with others on tracks, or when you're really doing any kind of business dealing. But often it's way more expensive to try and fix the problem later on, rather than just trying to get things in writing from the start. One really emotional example uh, of what can happen when you don't have your rights secured and agreements in writing is an article that Tommy Sunshine wrote for the book that ADE attendees got back in 2014 on the album he helped write and produce with Felix the Housecat. Tommy did multiple production sessions. He helped write lyrics in person and by phone, and about 10 other people were involved in piecing together what was called the seminal album of 2001. But uh, Tommy and others got screwed out of their production writing credits, causing some pretty bad financial hardships that never should have happened. And, you know, Tommy bounced back, of course, and and he ended uh, the article with, quote, It's fair to say that Felix taught me as much about the business as I taught him about the music. We truly schooled each other, end quote. And I'll see if I can find an online version of that article and put it in the show notes for paidfreedm.com. But without further ado, here is my interview with Mark, where we cover some of these important issues and some of the rights you need to be aware of. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. So how about we start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do and kind of how you got to where you are now? Okay, sure. Uh, Well, as you said at the top, I'm a music lawyer. My practice is restricted pretty well entirely to music-related issues. I do some technology work, apps, companies, um, uh, things like that. But uh, even that is uh, based in music because the main apps company that I'm involved with uh, has to do with uh, or they create music-related apps. So uh, what I do is negotiate either on behalf of artists or record companies or music publishers, um, anybody who is requiring uh, professional services when it comes to drafting contracts or negotiating deals. Um, I've been doing this on my own as a, as a sole practitioner since 2001. Uh, prior to that, I was called to the bar in 1990, and I've uh, uh, I started off in, in a law firm in downtown Toronto doing commercial litigation, so I cut my teeth going to court. Uh, I then worked for EMI Music Publishing uh, for, for a few years. I went back to another entertainment law firm after that. Uh, I subsequently worked at Alliance, uh, the film company that did exist at the time in the late 90s here in Toronto, biggest uh, independent production company in Canada. And I was 
Yep. yep. I was in their music department um, handling composer deals for um, uh, uh, full-length feature films, um, television series, movies of the week, uh, anything they had in production. I was the guy handling all the music-related stuff. Um, and then after that, that uh, division got sold. I went to a company called Song Corporation. I was there for, uh, again, a couple of years. And then uh, after that, uh, I went back to private practice, and that was in 2001. So I've been doing this ever since, um, running my own firm as well as I've got a music publishing company that has uh, several record labels as part of that. I run that with a business partner, uh, John Aquaviva, uh, and and uh, uh, we've got Definitive uh, rec- Recordings, uh, Secret Weapon Records, and a couple of other record labels. And on the music publishing side, we handle about 40 different catalogs, all electronic music. Uh, we handle Richie Houghton's catalog in Canada. Um, I work with Matthew Johnson, Pleasure Craft, um, Art Department's uh, music publishing catalog, uh, that the uh, rights they acquire through their label number 19. Uh, we've been doing, I've been doing that since about 2003. So that's been running for, for several years. And, uh, our sole aim there is just to make sure that our clients get paid. We saw our friends leaving too much money on the table and, uh, they didn't know how to collect their music publishing rights. So we uh, started signing them up and went and got that money for them. And, uh, uh, have been quite happy to make sure that uh, those guys get every penny that they're due. Nice. So is it really, is just a conscious decision to do the music publishing because you just found it easier from the inside, I guess, to get your clients the money that they needed versus, um, you know, from external working on agreements and not being part of the whole publishing side of things. Well, that's it. That's it. And having the experience uh, in several music publishing companies, including EMI and uh, handling all the music publishing rights when I was at Alliance, um, it's a highly technical business and it's uh, it's got all sorts of arcane twists and turns. And it's easy for people to get lost in that business. So um, I knew it pretty well and uh, was quite happy to extend the service uh, uh, to, to my clients and and uh, and to people that I don't represent on the law side either. I mean, there's just uh, all sorts of catalogs that uh, we simply act as a music publisher for. But, uh, you know, as, as a person in the business, it, it, uh, it just bothered me that people were leaving money on the table. And I, I figured, look, you guys need the money. Let's let me go get it. Give me a piece, uh, but you will get paid at the end of the day. And uh, that's that was the kind of operating uh, methodology that we started with. What were so? I mean, a lot of listeners are probably going to be people who are relatively new uh, to either publishing or you know maybe they're writing their first track. I mean, what were some things that you know? What were some revenue streams that people were leaving on the table that you're going out and, and collecting? Well, uh, back then, the, the, the big one was uh, artists would get a track on a CD compilation, either in somewhere in Europe or in England, because uh, those CD compilations sold lots of copies. Yep. So they'd get a track on the compilation. They would get an advance from the compilation company, but there's a whole – that there's a lot of back-end royalties that are, arise uh, out of their music publishing rights. And you need to be registered and, and have the tracks uh, registered with the local rights societies in the country of sale for those compilations. Right. So that's where you really need a third-party music publisher to come in and go and get that money. Yes, you could do that. 
yourself, but it would be time consuming and boring. And if you're an artist, your talents are probably much better spent in the studio. So uh, that's where we came in and would make sure the tracks got registered properly. We had a chain of sub publishers in all these other territories around the world, and we would employ them to make sure that uh, in these foreign territories that the rights were registered. So by getting the rights registered, that basically turns on the royalty tap and the money flows through. That was the main one that we saw that, that uh, uh, people were leaving on the table. But even simple things like if you don't register with your home society, let's say if you're a Canadian, you've got to register with SOCAN. If you're an American, you have a choice between uh, BMI, ASCAP, and a company called CSAC. Uh, if you don't register with one of those entities, if your track gets played on the radio, you're not going to see any of the performance royalties that are available that uh, uh, you would get from your airplay. That's kind of any, uh, a sort of obvious and easy one as well that you could do as a writer and should do as a writer to join one of these societies, because otherwise you're not going to get your performance royalties. Exactly. And that's something you have to do straight out the gate. I mean, even if you're, uh, you know, you've got something that you've maybe put on SoundCloud or, or YouTube or whatever and and you're not quite sure you know if it 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 might be your first run at the thing and and you might not even know if you know it's going to get any traction but you really need to register with your uh, performing rights organization before uh, it gets to the point where it hits the radio Uh, or is it something you can kind of backdate a little well, bit. you could backdate it because the money does sit there for at least three years. Well, probably no more than three years, I should say. Uh, but uh, my recommendation would be like, look, if you're serious about this and you, you want to take a run at a career in music, register with your local PRO as, as soon as you make that decision to be serious about it. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, the royalties flowing off SoundCloud or uh, yeah, SoundCloud are, are nothing really at this point. And YouTube, they're very small because YouTube is just getting licensed in, uh, in, in the main territories around the world. Um, that's kind of a complicated area, but just to skim over it, the money's coming off those plays are, are very small. But uh, um, if, if, like I say, if you're going to do this seriously, get registered, not only on the, uh, for your music publishing rights, but also for your master recording rights as well. Uh, in, in the United States, you'd be registering with uh, Sound Exchange. If you own the rights to your master uh, and you're a performer on those tracks, um, get registered there. In Canada, the organization is called MROC, M-R-O-C. Um, they handle the performer's rights uh, with respect to the sound recording. So there's kind of two income streams going there. One, the song, and uh, uh, two, the sound recording that embodies the song. Okay, and a lot of times that those rights might be assigned to a label, depending on if you're on a label or if you're working with uh, a label like the the rights to the masters or uh, would oftentimes the artist or whoever's actually generating those masters retain those rights? Yep, no, good question. So on the master side, if you've signed to a third-party label and they're using a correct contract, it is entirely likely that they will have the rights in the sound recording, um, uh, the the rights that are attributed to what's described as the producer, uh, meaning the one who makes the sound recording as opposed to the person who uh, 
turns the knobs on the mixing console. But that that's only 50% of what's available. The other 50% is attributable to the performer. And that's where you would get registered uh, with Sound Exchange as a performer or with MROC as a performer to collect that 50% associated with, uh, uh, with the master. So that if the track gets played on internet radio or if the track gets played uh, anywhere that the performing rights in the sound recording earn royalties, then you're in line to get those monies. Um, if you're a record company, uh, same thing. You'd want to register your master recordings with Sound Exchange in the U.S. In Canada, uh, you would be registering with an organization called um, uh, Connect Music. It used to be called the AVLA, Audio Video Licensing Agency. Uh, they, ch- they changed their name. So it, it's... Um, I guess that kind of would underscore one point I'd, I'd be recommending or, or uh, advising any new artist on. As you can see, this is it's not exactly streamlined. There's all <laughs> sorts there's all sorts of agencies you got to know about. Uh, there's uh, all sorts of memberships that don't cost anything to to join. Like SoCan does not charge writers to join. Um, uh, neither does Sound Exchange, and neither does Amrock. But uh, you've got to get in there and get your works and your name registered in order to collect. So back to, to to the one point I wanted to make: getting the proper advice, whether that be through a manager or through a lawyer, it would be good. To to invest in some sort of professional guidance if you're a young artist starting out to make sure that you've got some of these things or all of these things checked off, so to speak. Yeah, and at least uh, if the money is sitting there for three years or something, you know, because obviously a lot of artists and, and new labels and everything else aren't, aren't swimming in money, but at least they can go and backtrack and, and collect on what they're owed, you know, um, yeah. after the fact kind of thing, right? Once once they actually see that there's some money yeah, sitting but don't on the let table. It- Exactly, but don't let it sit forever because because yeah. <laughs> and these those streams I see those streams as becoming the main way that artists are going to get paid off of their produced work uh, because record sales right now don't generate much. Um, it, it's uh, you know piracy is rampant. Everybody steals, uh, and as streaming becomes the next uh, thing, uh, these right societies that are collecting the monies. Uh, from streaming or for whatever performances are available are going to be essential to getting that that uh, uh, what is now a trickle of royalties uh, into the hands of the artist. Right. And then in terms of so, I mean, if if record sales are dwindling, do you, are a lot of artists on that you're publishing music for or, or are their main sources of revenue more, you know, playing live performances like you know, if they're DJing? It's certainly become that, yes. The the performance fees are, are much more substantial now, and that is the main income stream for artists at this point. Um, I mean, a small note, in the music publishing world, say 20 years ago, mechanicals were the largest share of music publishing royalties. And those are the royalties associated with the sales of sound carriers, tapes, CDs, vinyl. Uh, and I can tell you now that uh, mechanicals are... A, small, a smaller portion than performances. So those are the airplay royalties that are associated with the song. Uh, it, it's a declining market. It's, uh, you know, you see these shifts in business from time to time. And that this is one good example where that side of the income stream is, is shrinking. Uh, and if you are an artist, 
uh, and, and especially an electronic artist and, and uh, you're looking to make a career of it, you will be making more money as a DJ than you will off of your sound recordings. However, it's essential to release sound recordings because they are essentially a flyer for your DJ services or your live performance services. And, and it, it shows the crowd and the, the world that you've got uh, the goods to deliver. Um, and it becomes that thing that attracts promoters to book you on their festivals or their, their clubs or whatever. That makes sense. So then in terms of um, uh, other agreements as well that artists should be looking at, um, are there, um, you know, before they actually uh, get their music on, you know, everything should be in writing, essentially, like if they're working with someone on a track, um, or if they're going to be releasing something on some kind of compilation, I mean, everything should be in, uh, in writing before, before they kind of even Absol- get out the gate or uh, well pretty well absolutely uh certainly uh and this one gets missed all the time if you're in the studio and you're collaborating with another producer uh before you leave the studio and that session is over you should have a at least a one page written document what is called a writer split agreement where you th- two or three or whatever people decide okay we agree on this track that each party is going to have X percentage um, and um, each party then signs off on that. So at least with those fundamental terms, uh, everybody knows that, okay, I've got half of this track, I've got a third of it, et cetera. Uh, Some other sentences could be added as to, um, uh, you know, if if anybody's going to if, if each party is going to retain their own publishing, who can do what with the track? Does everybody agree that it's going to be released on label X? Uh, those things could be added as well. But at a minimum, it should be decided who's got what portion. Because I've seen numerous situations where after the fact, somebody gets into an argument with one of their co-writers, digs in their heels and says – Okay, you know what? I'm not going to play ball anymore. Uh, you had nothing to do with that track, uh, and you can't release it, et cetera, et cetera. And then the whole thing just turns into a shouting match. So if you've got a written document from the get-go, um, that, uh, that, that's going to serve you well. So, And using that methodology and carrying it forward, yes. I mean, as a lawyer, I recommend that all agreements be put in writing. Certainly with copyright, the Copyright Act says that you can't transfer copyright unless it's in writing. So use that as a fundamental uh, rule in all dealings with the music business that uh, you get an agreement in writing uh, to to uh, memorialize the agreement between the parties so that you can avoid trouble down the road. Oh, for sure. I mean, do you see issues with, you know, like you mentioned, obviously, when you leave the studio, right? But so much welcome to the internet right like people can actually work in different countries different uh, areas and they're never actually in a studio and they're sending you know files back and forth maybe masters of you know samples and everything else right and then all of a sudden you know a track is created but you know now you lose touch or or someone just takes that and, and runs with it i mean have you seen any situation with that i mean should you should you then be getting agreements before you even start the process like before you even think that you're going to start collaborating or sending any files over yep if there's a if there's a chance of that happening yeah that would be prudent uh, uh, a prudent procedure um, at the same time you still could have a written document that gets inter- emailed over to the other guy that person signs it um, and you sign it and you trade copies and then you've got something in hand that um, will specify what is can be done with a track and who's got what percentage 
Yeah, I mean, there's a few other legal issues that come up there, like what jurisdiction applies, you know, do the laws of what country apply in with respect to that agreement. But I, I those are problems that would, you know, maybe come up later. Uh, if you had the main problem of who gets what addressed right off the top, m- with my experience, I, I, I'd say that's going to settle nine out of 10 problems and keep you, um, uh, you know, keep you in good stead so that you can profit from the track that you've collaborated on. So say you've released something and you see that someone's using it and maybe it, it it might not even be at the track level. Um, you know, maybe someone's using your song in, in some kind of, uh, you know, video as the background to a video, but it could even just be a sample. I mean, before, I guess, (laughs) I think it was common where you would actually mail yourself a postmarked, you know, copy of the original of whatever you created. And that kind of proves that you had ownership of that at a certain date. But now, obviously, in the digital age, that's, I mean, are there, are there any tips to actually, you know, document that, hey, I created this sample or I created this whatever, um, so that if there's ever some kind of dispute down the road, you can actually say, hey, you know, I had this first. This was mine. Well, that's what we used to call common law copyright, where you would mail yourself a CD or a tape of your your finished work and don't open the registered mail package when you get to it. And it, it, it it's not a copyright registration, but it served as evidence that on such and such a date with that time date stamp that you get when you register mail something, that this song existed and that I'm claiming ownership of it. So that might serve as evidence to pre that predate somebody else's use of the same song. Uh, sound or the same um, uh, series of chords that form a song. So, But you raise a, a, an interesting point. What does one do in this day and age when things are flying around the internet? Well, y- you could still burn it onto a CD and register mail it to, your, it to yourself um, as, as a, an instance of common law copyright, as, as I call it. Certainly, uh, once a work is finished, if you believe that work has got a viable commercial future, uh, it would be worth investing the whatever it is, 35 to 50 bucks and register that work with uh, your local copyright office. So in in uh, um, in the States, it's uh, it's the it's the uh, Library of Congress in Canada. It's the Copyright Office uh, having a legal registration done under the Copyright Act affords the copyright owner um, a whole slew of extra rights that are essential if if you're claiming certain damages. Um, But not everybody goes and does this. It it just seems to be one more administrative procedure that nobody really bothers with. But if, as I say, if you think that this work is going to go or let's say you've got You've licensed the track out to another label, and it looks like uh, you're getting other work, other licenses associated with that uh, with that track. Go and register the original track as a song. Uh, the label ideally would register it. Like if the label's taken the rights in the sound recording, they would go and register the sound recording uh, with the copyright office so that if there's a problem in the future, you've already got that essential step done. And, and uh, um, you know, I think the best advice I could give is if you've got questions on that, talk to a lawyer in your local home jurisdiction, whatever state, whatever province you're in, um, and get questions on those elements of copyright law answered. 
Yep, for your specific situation. Yeah, no, that makes yeah. sense. Cool. Um, so anything coming up that you're kind of excited about, either on the publishing side or on the legal side? Or Well, I mean, right now it's the summertime here in 2015. It's, we're in the thick of, uh, of uh, festival season. And I, I mean, it, it seems like all the work that was done in the spring is now kind of, you know, following through to the summer uh, because, I, you know, clients of mine like Richie Houghton is thoroughly uh, busy with the Enter shows that he does every Thursday uh, at Space in Ibiza. Uh, art department, another client of mine, are on tour and playing major festivals all around the U.S. and, and Europe. So um, those are the things I'm just sort of keeping track of and keeping an eye on because, like I say, there was a lot of work done leading up to those uh, uh, to this summer. Um uh, the other stuff I'm doing right now, I'm, I'm sort of finishing up. Uh, I, I'm a contributing writer to a couple of textbooks here in Canada, legal textbooks. So I'm updating my uh, my work there, uh, which I kind of do on an annual basis and uh, keep that stuff fresh. And of course, uh, it's not very far away now, but October is the Amsterdam dance event. And that is uh, pretty well the biggest date uh, for conferences on in the electronic music world. Uh, everybody's there and you can get a lot of business done in a short period of time in a you know in a terrific uh, environment that Amsterdam in the center there has to offer absolutely yeah Amsterdam's awesome I felt uh, a bit of an outsider when I was there uh, last year but it was uh it was unbelievable the the quality of the talks and the the people who who show up to that and obviously Amsterdam's pretty awesome as well so yeah, no, it's it's good. Yeah, it's a type of thing. Any of these conferences are the type of thing you have to invest in. You go the first year, and yeah, it's a overwhelming experience. You don't know that many people, but second year and third year, you get to know more and more people, and it really then becomes a going concern for you if you're in the business. Is there something about the industry you could see? I mean, you mentioned streamlining uh, some of these processes. Is there something kind of specific that you think? Um, you know, maybe electronic music in particular that, you know, if you had a magic wand, you could actually go and, and sort some of the stuff out. Or uh, do you think a lot of it's just going to be complex? No. Uh, well, there are, there are, well, yeah, complexities are always going to be there. But right now, the, the, the main task uh, that I see facing the business side of the industry is getting royalties back into the hands of artists. Uh, there, there's a huge disconnect between uh, getting club play. Let's say your track is, you know, in regular rotation, let's call it, uh, with uh, any number of DJs at any, at these festivals or at, uh, in nightclubs in general, getting the money that's available from those performances because all of these perform uh, clubs and all of these music festivals have to pay their local right societies a license fee for playing music and unless uh, track lists get submitted and uh, filed and then processed at these uh, performing rights societies, that money doesn't go into the right hands. It goes into uh, uh, probably mainstream pop artists' hands because that's just how these societies will parcel the money out. They don't know who it goes to, so they give it to people who are earning the money in other genres. Um, Getting that problem sorted out is is a big thing as well. Uh, the monies, the royalties earned from streaming and from downloads are still getting choked up at the performing rights society level. You've got uh, iTunes, you've got Beatport, uh, TrackSource paying money to these local PROs when they sell a download into that territory. Um, and that money is not getting into the hands of the guys or gals who wrote the track. And that problem, uh, there's a few efforts being made to try to sort this out, but it's, it's taking 
kind of a long time to get it done. And, uh, you know, in a day and age of, of computers and, and data, uh, getting these things to work together properly is posing a huge problem. Uh, but And if I could wave a magic wand, that would be the thing I would do first. Just get that problem sorted. However, it's going to take uh, more than a magic wand, I fear. <laughs> well, it's going to take all the PROs across the globe to kind of agree on a standard and yeah, everything else, right? Ex- exactly. But that, and that artists should know that and should be aware of that because these PROs do pay attention to artists' voices. And if artists are saying, listen, you're not paying me what I'm owed, why should I join you in the first place? That would kind of send a big message to the PROs to get their act cleaned up and make sure that the right artists get their what they're due uh, so that they can continue to eat and create. And then in terms of the um, set list collection, um, there are some uh, societies where you can't, unless it's your own track, you can't submit you know, you actually have to tell each artist that you're that you're playing that you've played it on such and such a date. Um, or, like I said, I think in Canada, you can actually submit a list of all the tracks that you played, uh, you know, by hand. You know, write it on this PDF form or something. And you can submit, but you can submit anyone's track. You know, so it doesn't need to be your own published music. Um, so, do you see like are there any inroads as to the technology to actually get that uh, going? Well, it's. Uh... Right now, it's still slow, and and in some cases, they're processing handwritten lists with sketchy data. Uh, If we could get to a system uh, the way, you know, kind of the way Pioneer is working with their Kubo system, uh, the way Houghton is working with Radar, uh, systems that would digitally transmit the correct metadata to the local society, and I'd love to see that go directly to the local society. Uh, these would be, you know, phenomenal things. You know, what, why a local society could not take in a Twitter feed from a DJ as he's playing, just e- as each track comes up, the computer just sends the tweet out. You know, this track is now being played at this club, uh, and and with that metadata, just that gets logged in. That saves all the hassle uh, and the manpower required to enter it by hand uh, and all the errors that go with that. If there was a streamlined system that uh, that would work, and we're not, I mean, people are making inroads to this area, but it hasn't been solved yet. And part of the problem is convincing the PROs to kind of look, get on board and and uh, experiment with a few of these things. Um, it wouldn't cost a fortune if we could if we could make inroads in that area. Uh, I and a lot of artists would be a lot happier. That's true. I mean, as a publisher as well, do you submit? Because some of the issues I think with the German based system that's using a database uh you know from france right which is only the major artists are you submitting as a publisher you know the you know to get to get all this the releases fingerprinted so that uh your radio play or uh, any of these music recognition technologies that come out would actually be able to uh i guess detect that that song is being played unlike kuvo i guess that's just reading the the you know metadata on the the file itself but yeah 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 well, in, no, in Canada, they don't take in, uh, at this point, they don't have um, a fingerprinting, uh, the ability to read fingerprinting from nightclubs. Right. Uh, the, I understand they are using uh, some fingerprinting for radio, but they're not using it for nightclubs yet. Holland was, and I think still is, using a system that does uh, listen, you know, basically they've got a listening station in the nightclubs, and that that scans for uh, sound recordings and, and uh 
compiles the data uh, uh, accordingly. Yeah, DJ um, Monitor, I believe, right? Correct. That's right. And I've, I've submitted to them in the past. Um, but no, in Canada, we're still, you know, working with the collection of data as opposed to uh, audio fingerprinting. If we could get to audio fingerprinting, you know, that would be good. But again, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a kind of, there's a certain capital expenditure required to put those listening stations in nightclubs. Um, I'd love to see, I mean, since most DJs these days are using computers, I, I don't know why we're not using the computer as a transmitter and sending directly to the local PRO. No, it makes sense because like you said, right, A, there's the capital cost and B, uh, you know, if, if it's a DJ who's mixing in an acapella for one track with the beat from another with, the, yeah. you know, riff from this other track, you know, good luck for any kind of music recognition that's taking on the back end, the end result of that mix, uh, mixing that the DJ is doing to actually detect any individual layer. I mean, it's it's near impossible technologically. But yeah, if they can actually just have the, co- the computer with whatever software just submitting that, hey, I'm, I'm playing these tracks at this time uh, yep. in this club. Yeah, which is uh, what what other systems are doing. Yeah, I think that would be a great great way to do it. So yeah, that that uh, that I mean, it's a huge challenge. Uh, and one thing I can guarantee you is that technology is not going to slow down. And this is, situation is only going to get more complex. So whatever we can do to collect as much data as possible to make sure that as much money as possible does get into the right hands would be terrific. Excellent. Well, thanks so much uh, for all your thoughts and advice and for being on the show. And um, yeah. Yeah, hopefully some of these uh, issues will get sorted out in the not too distant future all right great to be here again brian thanks very much be sure to check out paidforedm.com and let us know what you think of the show what you want to hear and even submit any questions you'd like answered right here on the paid for edm podcast don't forget to subscribe by itunes or your favorite podcast apps